0: Y bienvenido al Pocas de un Jugador, el show de Juegos de mesa Solitario. Soy su host Albert, y este es el episodio 47. ¡Vive la revolución! Hey everybody, welcome back. I hope that introduction didn't throw you off. Today's episode is an international episode. I am talking about the game Cuba Libre by GMT. I am also talking about Spiel Edessen in Germany. So it's a globe globetrotting show. Before we do that, as always, let's jump into the news. First off, well, this is 5th Column Games news, but it came via a Noble Knight email. If you have pre-ordered Where There Is Discord or Code Word Cromwell, um, you might want to know, or maybe you already do know, I don't know, Where There Is Discord is going to go into production this week, which is actually as of the end of September, so it's a few weeks ago, and Code Word Cromwell is not going to be produced at the same time, so it'll be shipping at a later point, or a later date. Next up, Fantasy Flight Games had some more information about Eldritch Horror. It looks like it's going to be available probably in November. Um, it's a neat looking game. Again if, again, if you don't recall, this is something like Arkham Horror, but now instead of just being in a single city, it's a globe-trotting adventure. Also, Victory Point Games announced that they were going to be doing... Victory Point Games announced they're going to be doing... Victory Point Games announced they're going to do a, a Gold Banner edition of Nemo's War soon. It is one of the next games. So you've been wanting to get that game. It's a really great game. You may want to hold on a little while just to get the the newer version. And Finally, the last piece of news. The one-player podcast is moving its world headquarters. That's right. We're going to be relocating to a larger office. Bigger studio, bigger everything. What this means to you is that the next show is probably going to be delayed while we move all our stuff and take care of all that. I don't know when it'll happen. There'll probably be another show in the next four weeks. Uh, possibly not. Sorry about that. Just hang on. Something will happen. Now, related to my move. After I'm done and I'm back, I am planning to sell some games and just reduce the amount of games I have and call my collection. I have no idea how many games I really will get rid of. I have high hopes to, to shrink my collection down by half or something like that. As I was going through my game collection on BGG tonight, I wasn't really finding I could get rid of every other game. Even though I say I will. Anyway, when that does happen, I'm going to do an auction on BGG. Anybody that is a member of the guild is going to get 10% off whatever the final price is. You have to join the guild before the auction starts, so go do it now. Just get in there if you haven't already, join the guild, and you know, maybe you'll find a game you want. I'm sure there'll be some solitaire games, I know there'll be some multiplayer games. I have no idea if they're good or bad or whatever. You know, we'll see. So anyway, let's go visit Germany. Well, it's great to be at Essen. Unfortunately, Spiel is two weeks away still at this point, but it's coming up soon. So while we wait, why don't we uh, look at some of the games coming out this year? I have gone ahead and made a geek list on BGG for all the solitaire games or solitaire friendly games I found going through the official BGG Essen preview list. Um, I found something like thirty or forty games. I'm going to go through and just mention some of the ones that seem most interesting to me. But uh, I urge you to go look at the Geek list and check it out for yourself. It's really interesting. there's you know it's a bunch of neat games, and honestly, I, I recommend just going and checking out the the geek list for all the games being released at us and that have been found at BGG. It's really neat to look at just some really cool looking games coming out this year, whether they support Solitaire play or not. The first one I saw that I thought was really interesting is uh seven days of Westerplot. this is a this is actually a cooperative war game. I've never seen anything like that before. I think from what I saw, it's probably more of a euro than a war game in the traditional sense, but still, it looks pretty neat. You are playing Polish forces trying to hold back the German army, or maybe the German navy, from taking over the city of Westerplatte. The next one is Carnival Zombie. Yeah, I like the artwork in this game, and really, that's what drew me. To, and really, that's what drew me to it first. Uh, but the game is about fighting zombies in a. An, ancient venice during a carnival how cool could that be next is caverna caverna the cave farmers this is uh, another game by uve rosenberg actually he's got two that i know of on this list the other one is primerhaven which is supposed to be sort of similar or at least in the vein of lahav caverna is more like uh agricola looks really neat next one is countdown special ops um it's a game where you're some sort of special ops and you're fighting horrible people or something. I don't know for sure, but I get the feeling that maybe it's something like Mission Impossible. And I always thought it would be really cool if there were a Mission Impossible solo game. Or I'm sorry, a Mission Impossible cooperative game. Where everybody has different types of characters with totally different abilities and they have to do totally different stuff. I don't think this is necessarily quite like that, but still, the the same sort of style theme, if nothing else. Next is Legacy, the Testament of Duke de Cresci. I like that really just because of the title. It's set in 1729 in pre-revolutionary France, and I will let you find out more about it yourself. Next is Lord of the Rings. Actually, this game has been off for a while, and I talked about it way back in one of my earlier shows, probably like the 4th or 5th or so. So this is a new game at us, and this is a reprint, and as a matter of fact, it is a special limited edition there are only going to be 500 English copies and 250 German copies total in this edition. It has 22 karat silver, 22 karat gold-plated ring in it. Peter Hobbit playing pieces and sign and number art print. Oh, and the box is signed by Reiner Knizia. Well, wow. the next game on the list—it looks interesting to me. Machina Arcana. It's actually going to be funded through Kickstarter. It isn't on there yet, so it won't actually be available at a sense of buy but you can preview it and try out the game there. Apparently it's some sort of dungeon crawling in a steampunky Victorian setting in which you're fighting Lovecraftian monsters. It just sounds like it's got all the perfect stuff. This may just be the last game anybody ever has to get. Next is Om Nom Nom. Looks goofy and I think that's what I like about it. The description says, All those carrots look so tempting that you might just snatch them. But what if the wolves have been expecting exactly that? A greedy rabbit just like you. You never know, um, so you can imagine. I have no idea how serious the game is or how complex, but I, you know, I like the way it looks and I like the board, and that made me want to find out more. So I will be looking at this game more. Next is Questor, published by Nestor Games, and this was a uh, crowdfunded through their own crowdfunding site. I think this one's neat because it's an abstract dungeon crawling game. Uh, it looks very simple, and I bet you it's ends up being a pretty neat puzzle. I don't know for sure, but it seems like it. So I'd like to try that. Next is Renaissance Man, published by Real Grande Games. In this game, each player... Let me read this to you. In each, let me read some of this to you. Let me just talk. So in this game, each player is an example of the typical Renaissance Man. Um, I find that humorous because uh, it includes skills like a scholar, a merchant, a knight, and a baker. I mean, don't get me wrong, bakers are important, but... I've never really thought of Baker's associated with uh the Renaissance, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know anyway, the game looks interesting enough though I did read the Solitaire play is not that great. it's probably not worth getting the game for Solitaire play itself. I should mention I read that in the Solitaire games on your table geek list that is being done every month you should if you aren't following those geek lists, you should definitely check them out because there's a lot of discussion on each about each game that get posted. There's tons of games getting played each month and listed there um people that are reading the list are finding a lot of games they didn't know about and are interested in now asking questions and it's a great place to go and learn more about different uh, different games if you're looking for something new next is roads and boats roads and boat is published by splotter Spellin. um apparently they publish one game a year and it's available at essen and always sells out really fast this year it's roads and boats which is actually a reprint it's a game they've released before and actually i think have reprinted more than once Apparently a really big heavy box and it's more of it's a game about developing stuff and delivering them and apparently it's a lot about the logistical tr- the logistics of transporting stuff. Logistics is transporting stuff, isn't it? Anyway, it, it it's a big complicated game that you can play solo. Next up is SOS Titanic. This is a solo or cooperative game. In it you are trying to rescue people from the Titanic. It's apparently sort of like playing a uh, patience, the solitaire card game, and it's got some neat-looking components and some really neat art. I'm interested in this because I'd like to see what they did with the uh, the mechanics from patience. So that's just a few of the games on the geek list. Um, those are my favorite, but again, I do recommend you check it out and see what else is what is available that you might be interested in. I've decided to have a little contest and give away a game related to Essen. I'm oh, sorry, the game isn't related to Essen. The contest is. Go ahead and send me a geek mail or email me at oneplayeralbert at gmail.com or, you know, find me some way. And just let me know which is, uh, which SN game you're most excited about, whether or not it's on that geek list. And you'll be entered to win a copy of Space Hulk Death Angel. You have basically until I publish the next episode. So, plenty of time. Just let me know what game you're most interested in and why. Okay, next stop, Cuba. Okay, so today's game is Cuba Libre. This game was published just recently, about a month ago. Or so, um, I just got it from GMT. It is published. It is designed by Volko Runke and Jeff Grossman. It is a game about Castro's insurgency, as the subtitle is 1957 through 1958. It is a game about the Cuban Revolution, where what ended up happening was Castro took over control of Cuba from Batista. Batista was a dictator running Cuba at the time. He might well no, he may have been elected, I don't really know honestly. But he was he had a corrupt government and people didn't necessarily like him a whole lot. Though he did have backing from the US for a while. Anyway, this game is part of the Counterinsurgency series. Uh GMT has currently I think three games in the series and there's another one coming out some point soon. Um the two available are Andy and Abyss, the one that came out first, I think it came out last year, and the other one that came out the same time as this is a distant plane. That one is set in Afghanistan the current war going on, I think. So what can I tell you about this game? First of all, the box is big. It's really big. It's um sort of like the size of Combat Commander. It's your typical war game bookshelf box, but it's about three inches deep. When you open it, what you'll find, much to my surprise, is the box has a big insert. It probably didn't need to be three inches deep, but it is, and I do appreciate that. Um... Inside the box you will find the rule book, a playbook, a hard mounted board, a bunch of player aids, ton of wooden bits, one sheet of counters and and a deck of cards. The all the components are really nice quality. The the art is nice. I admit I don't personally like the art of, on the box itself, but I do like the art inside the game. And the style of the art is similar in the I think it's all similar in all the coin games. The board looks kind of like the uh, Indiana abyss board. Anyway, the counters, most of them look pretty Euro. I mean, they got rounded corners and that sort of thing. There are a few small, squarish, square-cornered uh, wargaming counters that could probably use a little bit of clipping, but there aren't very many of those. There's a bunch of wooden bits. There's enough. Uh, there's all the bits needed for each of the four players. It's a four-player game, which can be played. Well, actually, can be played with any number from one through four. The reason this game works solitaire is because it brings rules to use robots. And I'll get more into that later. Um, the cards are nice. There's a small flaw in it specifically for the solo play, where it impacts the solo play a lot. And I'll tell you more about that later. But it's definitely not unplayable. Um, they don't have much flavor text, unfortunately. I wish they had a little more that told you about what the the image on the card has to do or whatever the title of the card has to do. But there really isn't much space for that, unfortunately. And uh, another really neat thing about the board and all the components is, once you're playing, you barely need to look at the rulebook. If you're familiar with the rules, you won't have to look at look at it at all once you're playing because all the information is on the board and the cards and all the player aids. It was very well done, actually. The rulebook itself is very well written. It was very easy to follow. It has a glossary with references to the pages where the rules are associated with the different terms, and there's references to rule th- other rules throughout the book. All the player aids will tell you what section of the rule to reference if you need to go look at the rule book. So it's all very well uh, cross reference and index and that sort of thing. So I told you about the components and very briefly. Let me tell you what the gameplay is like. It is a card driven war well, it is a card driven war game. The term war game is probably questionable, but let's just go with that for now. There are four sides. One player will control Batista's government Another will control, what's his name again? Another one will control Castro's insurgent army. A third will control the syndicate, which is basically the casinos and the mobs that ran them at the time. And they're sort of aligned with the Cuban government. And the fourth is the DR, which stands for Dominican Republic. No. Okay. And the fourth is the Directorio, which is a, I don't know, I guess it was a, Another insurgent group, another revolutionary group, a lot like Castro's army, but I think it was more centered around students and a student revolt. And again, those are sort of loosely aligned. And what I mean by aligned in this game is generally that stuff that benefits one of them often benefits the other. Um, so there's four sides. They're asymmetric. The government side, the government forces and the syndicate, the casinos, play very differently from the other two, from the insurgents. The Insurgents play pretty similarly, but again, even then, there are some differences in how they work and that sort of thing. If you're playing a solo game, you have to play one of two sides, which is pretty neat. You actually get to pick two sides. I know in the first game, Andy and Abyss, you only have one choice for which side you play in the solo game. Here, you could either be Batista's government or Castro's revolutionary army. The other two will always be controlled by a robot. The coin series of games are card-driven war games. Similar to Twilight Struggle or even Combat Commander, we're using cards to to dictate what kind of actions you can take. And it works differently because in this game, you don't have a hand of cards. There's always two cards on the table, and two people will get to, to take actions that turn. Each card has the symbol for the four powers along the top, but the order is different. Whichever power shows up first on the card can choose to either play the event or take an action to do other stuff. After they've gone... Who's ever comes up next in line can pick the, pick another action. If the event was already played, they can't play the event from the card. If the, other, if the first player played the event, then they could, you do their own actions. And there's some other restrictions on how that work. I'm not going to get a lot into those details, I think. Once two powers have taken their actions, whatever they choose to do, the turn is over, and the next card comes up, and whoever didn't take an action the first turn now is able to take it the second turn. So again, they go through the card in order, and whatever order they are in, they take their actions. What that does is as you're playing... Oh, excuse me, cat, you're drinking my water. Can you drink more quietly? Yeah, over there. So what that does as you're playing is you end up deciding sometimes, do I want to play the event, do I want to take an action, or do I just want to pass maybe and not even do anything because the next card looks even better for me and I'd rather play that next card. That honestly probably comes into... Play more in the multiplayer game. In the extra cat, can you drink more quietly? In the solitaire game, in the solitaire game, the robots always do the event or take an action. They they rarely pass. They only pass if they run out of money. Now, on the board, the map is divided into areas. There are cities. There's three major cities. There are seven regions. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, seven regions. Um, at the time, there are actually six regions, so one of them is divided into two for the game. I think largely because they have such different terrains. And then there's also a couple economic centers. The way the players move to the different regions and what they can do at different regions depends on a player-by-player basis again, because they play so differently. There is also a victory track around the game board. Each player tracks his victory points differently, which makes it. At first, it makes a little confusing, but it makes it interesting also and each player has a different go to win. For example, the government forces have to have 19 victory points to win the game while the casinos only need eight. and the way they're tracked is very differently. The casinos are tracked well the the syndicate I mean, they get one victory point per casino they have open. So once they have eight open casinos, they'll win the game at the next round if nobody else is in currently in victory mode. The government has it by the amount of support that they have. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a little while. So again, they're all very different and you know it it affects their strategy and uh, what they do. There's a couple different types of forces. There's guerrillas, the syndicate, the dictatorial, and the 26th July forces, which is what Castro's army was called, all have guerrillas. The government has police or troops that they could use. The gorillas are little or tall, hex-shaped. Uh, I want to say cubes, but they're not cubes, they're hex-shaped. Um, but they're wooden bits. And on one side, they have a star printed on them. And on the other side, it's nothing. So when you're playing the game, if your gorillas are underground, you have the star facing down. If they take an action, basically revealing themselves by taking that action, you flip it over and the star is up. Besides that, they have bases. Everybody has bases. The bases for the syndicate. Are the casinos the bases for the other people or, well, for the government or military bases? And I guess for the two insurgent groups, I don't know what they are. Um, the syndicate can make money from the bases. The other ones could raise troops from their bases. So, you know, as, again, as I'm going through, and I'll mention this a lot probably, is they all play very differently. As you could see, they there's little quirks into what they can do and how they do things that is very different for each power. And I think that's one thing that makes this game really interesting. Um, now, I said this is a quite a war game, and the reason is because of the way combat happens, it's very indirect. I think the only... well, I haven't done any direct fighting upset as the government. It's a little bit hard to do it when you're playing the July twenty sixth forces, I think. I don't know, maybe I haven't learned the game that well yet, but... Your main way to affect the game and the map is using terror. And maybe I should then talk about the different actions a player could choose. They they vary by power, but a player can do terror basically in an area um, a terrorist act which raises the the terror level in that space, makes it scarier for people and and it turns the um and it turns the will of the people towards one force or the other. For the government and the twenty sixth July forces, the, the way they get points is what by how much support they have from the different regions and cities. Actually, the government gets support. I'm kind of all over in this, but let me go back to describing the spaces. Each of the spaces has a number, which is the, the, po- the value of that space, the population. And it has a space for a control marker, which is who has the most troops, or who has a majority of the troops, which is not necessarily the most. I could have the most in a space if I have three cubes, and each of the other three powers have one cube each, but I don't have a majority of that space. Since I have three and there's six total. So you can control a space if you have a majority if you control it with a majority of pieces, not cubes. Um then there's also another space to mark on the, for each region which is which is the influence for that space. Okay, so each space could have support or opposition and it's a range of five. You know, okay, so the way I think of the scale is it goes from negative two to positive two. Active support is two, passive support is one, neutral is zero. Passive opposition is negative one, pa- active opposition is negative two. So a space could h- vary anywhere in that range. The government and the 26th July forces get victory points based on that. If the, if the space is in support, the government gets, well, if it's a passive support, it gets one times the population of that space in victory points. If it is active, it gets two times the population. The 26th of July is the same for opposition to the support. And so the way the powers can uh, affect that, the way the insurgent powers can affect that is by doing a terrorist action in that space, to, and that'll shift the support generally towards them. The government can do civic actions to shift the support towards their side. Now, I don't think I want to go into all the actions in detail, but maybe I'll have to. I don't know. Let's see. Um, There's rally, which is basically how the insurgents raise armies. There is marching, which is moving from one space to an adjacent space. There's attacking, which is actually fighting with a die roll to see if you, you're successful and if you kill enemy units. And there's the terrorist, the terror action, which basically shifts that uh, support opposition marker. Now when you're playing, you could take that action in as many spaces as you want and you have to pay to do that action. The cost for the government varies between two to four dollars or whatever it is. And for everybody else, it's one, a cost of one per, per region you do the action in. There's also something called a special activity that you could do along with your actions. You could do, when you do your action, you do it as many times as you want on the board that you could afford or that you can do within the rules. And then you could do one special activity. That could be infiltrating, which lets you convert a, an enemy unit to one of your own units. It lets you shift support. There's an ambush which lets you automatically succeed in an attack if you do an attack. And there is kidnapping which goes along with the terrorism that lets you then take money from one of the other powers at that space. Generally the government or the syndicate only. For example, you might be doing terror and doing some sort of terrorist action in a casino and then taking money from the casino at the same time. Uh, or it could be a kidnapping or something like that. And I'll say the ter- terrorism is one of the main ways for the insurgents to raise money. The actions for the dictatorial are pretty much the same. The special activity, the one that they could do only once per turn, a little bit different. And the way the actions work are a little bit different, but they're generally the same sort of stuff. The Syndicate's actions revolve around raising money and building casinos and moving that money around on the map, traveling with it. They also have the ability to move military troops to the where the casinos are. And they would do this because when there's troops there, it protects the casinos. And that could frustrate the government player if that happens. The government's actions are a little bit different. They could train troops. They could garrison troops, which basically lets them redeploy the troops. Well, actually, when I said train, it's not just troops. It's police or troops. They could garrison, which means basically move cubes around on the board. They could do a sweep, which lets them flip over underground guerrillas to be facing up. When a gorilla is up, they generally can't take an action like a terror. If they're they're already uh, face up and the cover is blown, then they can't go terrorizing. So everybody knows who they are. Anyway, and the final action is assault, which lets them remove their remove those uh, active gorillas on the spaces where they're at. I think that's as much as I'm going to say about the actions. There, there's a few choices again; it varies by player. That's really the key things here. And the player, or even a robot's way to interact with the game, are either through the events or through taking actions. So when you're playing this little game, I said you use robots for the other players. Um The way it works is you have a flowchart per player, and it'll say things like, your first choice is for the 26th of July. Can they do terror in a space where they get to shift the up op- towards opposition, or maybe take money from the syndicate or from the government? If yes, then do a terror action. If not, go to the next step in the flowchart. And you do that for each of the powers. This is a flowchart for each of the powers you know, I wonder if in theory you could actually play the syndicator directorio as a player and let the other three be the robots. You know, they don't mention anything in the rules, but I suppose it's possible. Heck, I suppose you could actually have four robots playing against each other and you just sit back and move the pieces around for the robots. Anyway, I personally found the robots confusing. Um, you know, this this game isn't complicated. It's not very hard. The rules are pretty well written, very well written and pretty straightforward. But I found trying to learn the robots and the mechanics of the game at the same time was really hard. This is a game where I think you're better off getting some friends and learning the game with friends and then starting the robots, once you're more familiar with how the game works. The first time I played, I think it took about three hours and I gave up and I wasn't quite halfway through the game yet. And it was because I was going back and forth a lot through the flow charts and the reference charts that tell you the different actions and the rule books and the board and all. It just took forever. So actually, I should probably mention the earlier. I said there's one thing about the cards I didn't like. When you're playing the robots, when it's their turn to take an action, by default they always choose the event. However, you look at the card and um, where the symbol for that player power's player's power is at. If there's a halo around that symbol, that then you want to look in the reference chart to see because it might tell you they don't play the event or they play in a certain specific way. The problem is that that halo is really hard to see. As a matter of fact, the first time I was looking, I looked through the cards I just didn't see a halo. Then I finally had to go look back at the rulebook and I, I could see what it is. And it's a very light, gray, hard to see circle around the player power icon. I wish they either made it more bold and more easy to see or just something different. So it's not a huge thing. Once I got the hang of it, it's not hard to find. But I'm not always sure when I see it. I have to double check a lot of times. Just to be sure that I don't miss one. And probably as you're playing... It'll you could tell if the card doesn't make sense to play because it's just not benefiting you in any way. Or I'm sorry, not benefiting that robot. Or that robot's action is going to help the player. As a rule of thumb, if the event is going to help the player, that robot probably shouldn't be doing it and has a halo around their icon. Anyway, so that's one complaint. My only other complaint about the game is that the rule book has... Well, all the information you need once you're familiar with the game is on the board and on the cards and on the player aids. Except for starting money. That's the only thing you really have to look at the rule book to figure out how much money the player should have. I wish that was marked on the board. Even the number of points each side needs for, for victory is displayed on the on the board and a nice highlight by those spaces. It's subtle and but it's easy to see. Anyway, so so that's really my only complaints about the game. I do like the game. I had a lot of fun playing it these last few weeks. It's been hard, slow going, getting used to the game and uh, my play has sped up as I go along. Well, first, let me step back and tell you why I want I was interested in this game in the first place. It's because I was born in Cuba. I left when I was really young. I was only two years old, but I was born there. I, obviously, I have no memories I left it to. We went to Spain and lived there for a few years, and then we moved to the U.S., and I grew up in Florida, South Florida, so not far from Cuba. That culture is still all around me. And then I uh, moved to San Francisco. It turns out that if you live in, out west in California... You're, if you're Hispanic, you're Mexican by default. Um, everybody just assumed I was Mexican. They were always surprised to hear it was different. Now I'm in South Carolina and I am just vaguely Hispanic. It's no longer so clear cut. And growing up in Florida, if you're Hispanic, you're Cuban also. Just like in California, if you're Hispanic, you're Mexican. Anyway, so, you know, having been born there, I was just really interested in the game. So I will say I am not at all let down by my hopes or expectations or whatever of the game. Other than it's complicated, so it's not going to be something that's going to come out often just because of the time to play and set it up. Fortunately, because I am moving into the new house, as I mentioned earlier, I'll probably have a room where I can just play the games and shut the door so I don't have to worry about cats coming in and messing up my board. So I could potentially leave the game out overnight, you know, start it one day, finish it another day. But I have enjoyed, I definitely have enjoyed the game. Um, I find the robots a little annoying because they take a lot of time going through that flowchart. I think a lot of that is just not being familiar with the rules. I am finding as I play, I'm starting to realize that a lot of times you, you kind of follow the flowchart a little bit, but then within its guidelines, you just do what's the best choice for the robot. So in a way, I'm just basically playing a all sides of a four-player game. Except I'm rooting for one specific side. Actually, that's not true because every time the robots are taking their action, I would get excited if something good happened for them. And I have to remind myself that you know that's actually going to hurt me, so I shouldn't be happy for the robot. So I wonder if it maybe be fine just to play all four sides myself, and it would work well. One of the bad things about the robots is that they take time. I already mentioned that. So, and you're not deciding what to do for them. So you're sitting around doing all the. uh Bookkeeping for the robot waiting for your turn, and then your turn comes along and it tends to be a bit faster than the robots because you know what you want to do and it doesn't take that long as it does to read through the flowchart and try to interpret it. It is fun to go through the game and trying to decide whether to play the card or take an action. There's also something called a limited action and or just an action. When you're playing the game you can either choose to take the event or play the action with the special ops that I mentioned or just play the action without a special ops um you would choose that last one well either because you can't do a special ops or maybe because if you do that then the next player to go his only choice is to do one action in one location so you could really restrict them you know that that's one good way to keep a the robot from playing an event if an event's coming up and you really don't want it to happen and your choice is either to play it or not play it then taking that option of a Taking that option of only doing an action will keep the robot from doing the event. You know, you kind of limit yourself to what you can do also, but sometimes it's a better choice. So as you're playing, so as I'm playing, I'm finding I'm really enjoying trying to figure out what to do. I'm enjoying that, that a card driven mechanic and choosing what events I want to play and which ones I'd rather pass on or which ones I want to keep the robot from doing. All that management, that's really neat. The, I'm finding the combat still a little bit confusing. I'm, it's not a hundred percent clear on me how to play well. Though so the one of the games I finished I came pretty close it was actually a tie between me and one of the other powers and they won only because the rule says in the case of a tie the robot always wins. You basically have to do better than the robots. What else? Ties, robots. The solo game is long because the way it works there's four there's four I don't know scoring rounds and when you get one of those the game can potentially end. If somebody is has enough victory points to win, they uh, the game will end normally at that point and that person is the winner. If you're playing solo, you could only lose at that point. If the robots have enough points to win the game, you lose. You have to make it all the way through the end of the game and then be the winner. Um, So that does drag out the solo game a little bit. I did lose one game actually in the the first uh, scoring card. It was only like after about 20 minutes of play, it was really fast. I'm finding now a, a full game takes me about three hours to play, the setup time is really fast but the actual plane is about three hours, including all the referencing the rules and going back and forth with the flowcharts and robots and all that. I found the government easier to play because of the robots again. Um, the robots for the syndicate and the 26 July forces are pretty similar, so if you're playing the government, you kind of have two and a half robots to figure out. If you're playing the 26 July forces then all three robots are very different and you end up playing three robots. So I, I found that helped. I also found it easier to play in that I understood what to do better as the government forces. I don't know if that's just me or what though. So I think that's it. That's it for this game. I very much enjoyed it. I really like the the way the game works and I think I would like the other coin series games um, because I enjoy the way the card play works and the interaction between the different forces and the the tough choices you got to make while you're playing. Um... Apparently this one is smaller than the other games in the series, and people seem to think that's nice. Don't have an opinion because I haven't played any of the other games. I've only seen them on BGG. Alright, so that's it. Um, I don't know. I'll be on again in a few weeks. I'm not sure what that means, but once that move is over, things will get more back to normal, hopefully, and then I'll be able to do more regular shows. And again, because I do have a a new game room in the house, uh, there's opportunities to play bigger games and talk about them on the show. It is, right now it is so hard to do those just because it takes so much time and I have to finish it in one evening. Okay, that's it. Goodbye. See you next month. Thanks for joining me in this uh, globe-trotting adventure. I know we only visited a couple places around the world. Maybe we'll have to do it again. It's a little hard traveling by train, so maybe next time we'll find a different way to get around. Well, that's the end of today's episode. If you'd like to contact me, you can find me as Fractaloon on BoardGameGeek, or you can email me at oneplayeralbert at com. You can also post comments on the Podcast Geek List on BoardGameGeek, or come visit the One Player Guild on BoardGameGeek for comments and discussion and whatnot. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected under a Creative Commons license and can be found at gemendo.com. The show is published under Creative Commons, non-commercial, share-alike license. Thanks for listening.